So back when I was a student at university, back in the dark ages, uh, there came a moment that every student dreads. It happens twice a year, it's called the exams. Oh, okay, I can see sweat forming on people here. Um, you get the exam time timetable and you kind of figure out how much time you have between the exams. Is this you? You kind of see you've got, I've got five hours to cram in a whole semester before this exam. Is that you? Is that the way you operate? You have lots of work to do to get through the exam. Now, understand that exams are important um, from an educational perspective. We've got a few teachers here, you know. Um, the, the tests, you, they want to see whether you actually learned anything over the last 13 or 14 weeks um, because that's not always guaranteed. But a lot hangs on those exams, doesn't it? A lot. You know, I had some exams that were worth 80-something percent. That's a lot. I, I remember one semester I was sick. I was sick for about half the semester and I missed a lot of classes. And I was always behind, always running late. And then came the dreaded exam periods. And I basically failed um, several exams. And I had to, I scraped through just and had to resit exams just to make it through the, through the course. We're in the Garden of Eden today. We're in and among the trees. Can you imagine it? It's very, a, a beautiful place, isn't it? We're in paradise. We're walking around, we're looking at the rivers. It's a wet place. We're admiring the views. And the garden is God's sanctuary, isn't it? The temple. Uh, and today we'll look at what God wants the man to do. What he wants him to do within this sanctuary. God gives Adam a role and he offers a relationship so we're in this garden here. But then we peer around and we see two trees. The kids have one on the handout anyway. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And we find out that one of these trees is the way to live forever. Forever with God. In glory. And the other is a test. It's a test of belief. And a lot hangs on this test, uh, even more than the 80% exam. This moment in Eden, this test, is literally a matter of life and death. And the question is, will Adam love God? Will he obey God? Or will he put himself first? Will he love God or not? Will he trust God or not? There's a test in the garden, and we're going to look at that today in these verses. So we'll see the role that God gives Adam and through Adam to us, um, but also the good news in this passage that God wants a relationship with human, human beings, with us, but not in Adam, but in Christ, the last Adam. So first point today, God gives Adam a role, a responsibility, something to do. Let's have a look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So God takes the man he's made outside the garden, look there, and he puts him into it. It's like picking up a chess piece, I imagine that. Put. <laughs> 
He puts him into this, this garden sanctuary, a temple. And across the Bible, the other temples and sanctuaries that we find in the Bible all have design elements that hark back to this temple. God's people are in God's paradise, in God's presence. Three Ps there. People, paradise and presence. So, verse 15, God gives Adam something to do. He gives him a role. What does it say there? To work and take care of the garden. Now, the verbs there, to work and take care, are very important. These are verbs which are used to describe the role of priests who serve in the tabernacle later in the Bible. Um, you find that in Leviticus. The priests are there to work or to serve in the tabernacle, take care of it, or you could translate it to guard it. Guard it from what, you might ask? Well, the role of the priest was to guard the sacred place, the holy place, from anything unclean entering into it. Now, you could think of something like a slithering devilish serpent that sneaks into the paradise of God and why that was the case. Well, Adam didn't protect the garden, did he? Yeah? So when we think of Adam, we're to think of a priest. But we're also to think of him as a king. Remember back in chapter 1, he's a kingly gardener. He's in God's image. He's a royal person. He's in a representative of God in the world, reflecting God in, in how he goes about things. But also, Adam, there is to, Adam is here to serve God by guarding the garden from unclean things. Adam is a priest, a king, but he's also a prophet um, who was to teach God's word to his wife, who he isn't actually made at this point, but also to his offspring, his children. Adam has a role. He's put in the garden to serve God in these ways. And so for us, we see here human, humanity's original calling. Original calling. It's what God made us to do. God makes us to serve him. You see? Just as uh, we see Adam's given this this role, this responsibility to cultivate the ground back up in verse 5, so we're to see our lives as service. In particular, our work, our everyday work as service, as a calling. God gives humanity a role to cultivate the ground, verse 5, and we're to view our daily endeavours as service. We're to serve God through our work. So you see, the Garden of Eden is good, right? It's very good. God declares it very good. The creation is very good, it, but it's incomplete. Chapter 1, verse 28, humanity is to rule and subdue and multiply. So when we think about Eden, you're meant to think about potential, right? It's not yet finished. It's good, it's pristine, but it's not yet where it's meant to be. There's no sin but it's not yet glorified. Eden is made by God to be developed, cultivated. It's made by God to go somewhere. Where's it, to, where's it going? It's going to glory, right? It's not a static place. 
This temple garden is meant to be expanded to fit more people in. Adam's role is to extend this paradise across God's world, filling, multiplying, cultivating, so that the whole earth and all the people of the earth would dwell with God. He would be their God and we would be his people. That's Adam's role. And yet, so what do we make of this for us? Well, we're not in Eden. Something bad happened in chapter 3, we'll find out. But there's an application here for us in our everyday. God shows us here that we are made to serve him. That is our calling. We are designed by God to work in his world in whatever way, in a way that points to Christ, to serve Jesus. In in Genesis 1, God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. And we're to see our our rhythms, our work, as a reflection of God's work. You know, our day-by-day work is a good gift given to us as a way to serve our maker. Now, Adam's work of cultivating the ground and um, guarding the garden wasn't frustrated. Um, He was in paradise. There was no hard drive crashes or angry clients, no difficult bosses, no problems. Adam in chapter 2 is is before sin here. But despite all the hard things that enter into our work because of this broken and sinful world, we can still view our day-by-day lives as a calling from God, as a gift from God. Our daily work is now cursed, but itself, in and of itself, is not a curse. Now, think about what we do every day. You know, most of us, um, I don't know what you do. Well, I do know what you do, but I'm not going to tell you right now. (laughs) Um, It's not a curse, is it? It's a gift. This means we shouldn't complain about our work, even though it's hard. I mean, I've been in some pretty dodgy situations before with bosses who are borderline criminals. <laughs> uh, but I'd rather work, you know, I'd rather work in a good workplace where people get along and, and the boss is fair. But even then, even then, our work is a gift from God. Should we complain about that? It also means that only living for Friday night, only living for the weekend, only living for the holiday is also not a great way of looking at our everyday work. It also means that being lazy, as the Proverbs say, is is actually sinful. Our pattern of idleness is, is a wrong way of viewing our calling to serve God. I know many people dream about retirement. I've got another 30 years to go. Um, So it's, I don't, yeah. (laughs) But who's counting? The thing is, retirement from one job doesn't actually mean there's no work for you to do. God doesn't make us to while away or be lazy for the last 20 or 30 years of our life. We're designed to be productive in the way God has made us, um, to the particular capacities that we have, um, whether it's paid or not paid. We're to view our lives, whatever we do day by day, as an act of service. Now, one person I was reading this week summarised the biblical view of work. And he laid out some principles, and I'm going to give them to you. And he put it like this. 
This is how the Bible looks at work. And I hope it's helpful because we're all workers in one form or another. So principle one, all lawful work is sacred. In other words, if you're doing good work that isn't sinful, you know, there are sin, sinful jobs out there, you should see what you, you do day by day as a divine calling, a vocation, not merely a job. God calls you to do things, no matter whether it's on the tools or a computer or um, doing the dishes or whatever you do with your time. It's a vocation given to you by God. Principle two, we work before the face of God. We work in such a way as to please the Lord. That's our calling as Christians, to honour God through our work. So if you want to change job, and you know, that's good, you can do that. Or go into a different line of work, that's okay too. But you need to do it prayerfully, right? Before God. Principle three, service is the main motivation for our daily work. You know, that's what we see here, isn't it? We're to serve the Lord. Service is the goal. Our work is a lifetime of service. We're to use our time, our talents, our gifts to serve other people. And by, do so, and by so doing, we, we serve the Lord. Principle four, we're to be devoted to our work. So not lazy, but also not enslaved by it. As uh, we're to look at it, not to be consumed by it, but doing it wholeheartedly as to the Lord. So I wonder if you view your work this way, as a, as a sacred calling, as a thing we do before God, as service, as something to do wholeheartedly. Do you view your work like that? Now, kids, you've got work to do as well, don't you? You don't just work when you turn uh, 16 and start working at Macca's. No, you work now. You've got day-to-day work as a gift from God given to you. Now, now you've got stuff to do around the house, don't you? Packing up, maybe doing the dishes or the rubbish. Um, but you've got schoolwork as well. Do you see this part of your life as a way to serve God? It's a gift from God for you. And parents, we're to teach our children that work isn't just something to endure, as something to get through before the fun stuff happens. No, work is actually a gift. It's a good thing for our kids. Um, God designed it. He gave it to us as a gift. So God gives Adam a role, you see, and it's, a lot, a lot, it's actually basically agricultural work. But he gives us all work to do in his world as a way to serve him. Now, secondly, flowing out of Adam's role as a temple priest worker in the garden, God also wants a relationship with the man. He wants a relationship with us as well. So look look for a look at the next verse there. And it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Then the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. So the man is in the garden to serve God, to work, to guard the sanctuary. But if that's not a high enough privilege, God also wants a special relationship with the man. What do we got here? What do we have here? We have a covenant. 
What is a covenant? It's an agreement. And we've got this agreement between God and Adam. And this has historically been called the covenant of works. And I want to say, if this is a new idea for you, and I reckon it might be a new idea for some of you, that's okay. But I also want to say that if you begin to understand what a covenant is and the covenant of works, it'll actually unlock the Bible for you. So it's worth getting this. It's worth studying this. And in particular, it'll show you why Jesus is amazing. So you'll notice that the word covenant isn't actually used in these verses. But the markers of a biblical covenant are here, right here in the text. It's an, it's an agreement, yep. Two or more parties, yes, God and man. There's penalties for breaking the covenant. Yeah, you can see that there, right? And there's also promises for keeping it. That's, that's more implied in the, in the text there. God makes a covenantal a relationship with Adam. But notice, first of all, verse 16, it says, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. You're free. Adam, you've got everything. The world at your feet. You're a royal priest. You've got the everything. I give this to you. What a gift. Think on that. What a gift God has given the man. God is incredibly generous here. So don't think of a covenant as like a cold backroom legal agreement with suits. No, this is a loving, generous relationship on offer. The infinite, holy God of the universe wants a relationship with this man that he's sort of fashioned out of the dust. Think on that. He wants a relationship with people. So in verse 17, God commands Adam, you can eat from any tree but one. This is the test, like exams at school or even like a probationary period in a new job, right? This is the time of testing. God is testing Adam with these trees. And he says, Adam, you have everything but one tree. You have everything but one tree. It's off limits. And if you eat of this tree, you will certainly die. So what are these trees? What's going on here? What are these trees in the garden? You've got the tree of life, which is there a few verses before, and the tree of knowledge. Verse 17, the tree of knowledge. Let's start there. What is the tree of knowledge? Well, knowledge means you know things, right? It means you get choices. Like when you choose between different flavours of ice cream, you can choose... Um, when, I grew, when I was growing up, it was always chocolate, vanilla or strawberry. They were the options. I'd always choose vanilla and strawberry because if you mix chocolate in there, it just ruins it. All right? Knowledge brings a choice. So the tree of knowledge is the knowledge to decide. So what's the choice? It's a choice to decide what is good and evil. It's a test here to see if Adam would grab for himself the authority to decide good and evil, right and wrong. Now, who does that belong to? Who has the choice to decide what is good and evil? Maybe the kids can help me out here. Who gets to choose what is right and wrong? Yep. God, absolutely, spot on. God decides what is right and wrong. It's, it's his 
prerogative. It's his domain. So the test is really a test of belief. Would Adam believe in God or would he trust God? Or would he say, I want to be God. I want to decide. I want to choose for myself how I want to live. You see, God wants more than innocence, you see. He wants more than innocence from Adam. God wants Adam to be more than innocent. He wants him to be righteous, you see. To choose what is right, he wants obedience. And if Adam would obey and not eat from the tree of knowledge, he'd receive the promise of the covenant. And what is the promise? Well, it's implied in verse 16 and 17. It's in the wider context. It's the promise of life. This is what the tree of life is all about. What's the tree of life all about? It's about life. The tree of life, it's in verse 9 of chapter 2. It's also in verse 22 of chapter 3, where we see that to eat from the tree, you'd live forever. It also pops up in different parts of the Bible, um, but particularly in Revelation. You see it in Revelation in chapter 2 and, and also chapter 21 or 2. Jesus says in chapter 2 of the Bible, of um, Revelation, that he is the one who gives the right to eat from the tree of life. So what's, the, what's this tree about? It's about life. It's about eternal life. Life forever with God. Remember, the, the, this, this garden is meant to go somewhere. And if Adam and Eve obeyed the covenant, they'd be able to eat from the tree of life. And they'd live as God's treasured people in paradise, in his presence. They'd have eternal life. So what's he saying? He's saying, Adam, you're going to love me. Are you going to love me? Are you going to listen to my word? Are you going to obey my commands? God is saying that to Adam. You have everything, Adam. I have given it to you. Will you love me? That's the test. You see? Will you love me? Will you believe in me? Then, Adam looks around, sees the world at his feet. He sees the blessing from God. Everything. He sees a close friendship with God on offer. And what does Adam do? He eats from the tree of knowledge. They re human, human beings reject God's gift of service, of relationship, and they say no. So you might be thinking, this is all very theoretical, but what's it actually got to do with us? To which I want to say, it has everything to do with us. This covenant is a very real and present reality. We've got to realise that this is not just something the way happened back, way happened back then in the garden and sort of disappeared. No, the Bible teaches us that Adam is a public person. Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15 that we read before. Adam represents human beings. He is the federal head of the whole human race. 
And that means when Adam disobeyed God and took from that tree and said, nope, I want to make up the rules. I want to decide. I don't want to serve you, God. I don't want this relationship with you, God. That means Adam's disobedience became our disobedience. Adam's sin is our sin. We are in Adam. And that means we're all covenant breakers. And so look at the verse. What's the consequence? What's the consequence for Adam's disobeying God's word? What does it say? God says to Adam and to us all who are in him, you will surely die. Have you ever thought about this? Why is there death in the world? It's because we're covenant breakers. You will surely die. You will certainly die. Yes, we have a slow road to physical death. But what it's getting out here is really exile from God. It's spiritual death. We all in Adam are dead in sin. Adam's guilt is our guilt. And we sin daily. Back in Edom, Adam could have obeyed God. He had that choice. He had the freedom to choose not to sin. He could, over time, presumably have taken from the tree of life and lived forever in God's paradise. Adam had God's law written on his heart. Adam was righteous and holy, but he chose to sin. You see, friends, we cannot choose not to sin. Unlike Adam in the garden, we are fallen. The covenant is still over us, but it is impossible for us to keep it. You see, we have a big problem. There is a sword hanging over us. God's justice demands death. There's nothing we can do from our side. We can't actually help it. We can't help ourselves. We are dead in sin. God demands perfect obedience in the covenant of works. And either we must bring it, which is impossible. You see our predicament? We can't do it. We must bring it or Christ must do it for us. You see? This is the glorious news of the gospel. God makes a new covenant. He makes a covenant of grace, which we see in Genesis 3 verse 15. Jesus is the last Adam. And he fulfills the covenant of works on our behalf. Where Adam was a faithless priest, Christ is the faithful high priest. Where Adam was in paradise with the world at his feet and said no to God, Christ came into a fallen world, tempted, he went into the wilderness. And yet he said no to sin and yes to his father. Adam sought to grasp equality with God. He wanted to live his own way. He didn't love God. But according to Philippians chapter 2, Christ came not to grasp equality with God, but humbled himself as a servant, even to death on a cross. This is what Christ came to do. 
He came to be our mediator, our representative, who obeys God where we can't. He came in our place for us and he takes on himself the covenant curses and dies at the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. So friends, there is a choice before all of us from these words in Genesis 2. either, Either we can say no to God like Adam. We can define our own lives. We can try to do that. We can try and live our own way, our right, our wrong. We can be the masters of our own sailing ship. Or we can run to Jesus. We can flee to Jesus. So if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus, you face the consequence of sin on your own. And that is not a good place to be in. God, you see, requires obedience. And let me tell you, you can't obey. You can't do it. You can't curry his favour. You can't influence God. You cannot work your way into this friendship. No matter how many good things you've done, you know, charity work, helping to pay a power bill for someone or cutting up firewood. It's not about what we can offer God, friends. The gospel is that God comes to helpless sinners like us and saves us from our deadness. He alone satisfies his justice for our sin. We cannot do it, but God does it for us. He sends his son, Jesus, to offer a relationship that is solely based on grace and mercy, not our obedience. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. A Christian is someone who trusts in Jesus, you see, not themselves. A Christian is someone who knows they need a saviour, a rescuer, a deliverer, because we know that we're helpless. We can't do it. The Christian is forever thankful. I am so thankful for Christ's life has become our life. Christ's death has become our death. A Christian is one of God's treasured people looking forward to paradise where we'll live forever in God's presence. You know, Adam failed and we all in Adam fail as well. But Jesus passes the test with more than flying colours. And in him and him alone, there is the promise of eternal life. 